This is Priya Malik, Managing Director at Step Global Group. And this is Abtin Baziri, Managing Director at Brevet Capital Management. Welcome to the Investment Migration Report. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to be investment, tax, or other professional advice or a recommendation to buy or refrain from buying any security, product, or service. The views and opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the views or opinions of our employers. Today, we have two special guests with the American Immigrant Investor Alliance, Sean Gihani and Ishan Khanna. Thank you for joining us and welcome. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. So I think uh, one, of, one of the most important questions a lot of our listeners wanted to ask is, what prompted you to start an investors alliance and how, how, did, that, uh, how did that go about? Uh, yeah. So, uh, Aptin Priya, thanks for having us. Um, you know, you'd be surprised that, you know, EB5 investors have been, um, you know, have been advocating, have been actively sort of following the space, you know, pre and post their investments in an informal manner for a number of years now. Uh, what we found, however, was these clusters of sort of informal and organized groups of investors. Uh, you know, what, what they really needed was um, some sort of uh, guidance and also a platform as, you know, some of the issues facing the industry, as well as those that face us investors directly have become increasingly more complex. Um, so, you know, this thought of uh, setting up the alliance really came about from the from the needs that, that these investors have about, you know, having a seat at the table with respect to the conversations that are happening that directly affect us. And ultimately, what we really wanted to do was to, you know, create an organization that can help improve the quality of the of the immigration and investment experience that investors go through. There, there, there was no consistent uh, quality of this experience that investors went. A lot of them relied on their service providers. A lot of them do rely on their regional centers. And we recognize all those players, obviously. Uh, we wouldn't be here if those players weren't there. But, you know, what we try and do is really sort of provide, you know, from, I'll say, from cradle to grave, um, you know, uh, services to investors to, to really sort of guide them throughout the process, which can be which can be quite taxing, you know, as you know. Sorry, I was just going to say, to be clear, this is the full name of your organization is the American Immigrant Investors Alliance, right? That's AIIA. Uh, or the alliance, as you call it as well. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about who the founding members of the organization are and who's currently on your board? Right. So, well, two of the founding members are right here with you, myself and Ishan. Um, and then we have a couple of others as well. And we, we're all from diverse backgrounds. I myself am a Canadian citizen. I, I'm based out of Toronto. Um, we have uh, another founding member who's actually of Australian descent. We've got another founding member who's... Uh, you know, a student at Harvard right now. So we have uh, different things that, you know, that we bring to the table and, uh, you know, we're all very diverse from, from where we came from. It's, it's uh, the, you know, the way that we sort of came together was really based on our combined vision about what, you know, we wanted out of this uh, uh, rather than anything else. You know, at, at TIMR, we try to be agnostic and we want to just cover different areas that investors are interested in. Uh, but I personally just think, you know, in the AB5 space in the last 30 years, there's been a lot of stakeholders, but not a lot of attention has been paid to the actual investors, to the actual families who are impacted by this, to the actual investors. And I, w- I was, you know, rough estimate, I would think somewhere between 100,000 and 200,000, you know, immigrant investors have come to the United States in the last 30 years. And I applaud you for starting this organization. I wish there were more organizations of, of the sort. And 
and I bet you know depending on what country you originate from or what you know where your uh, wants are, there may be different uh, you know different wants and needs and different uh, different issues that are important to different investors. But we applaud you and uh, and we're excited to hear your point of view um, on, on 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 issues that really affect investors and other people haven't really. Uh, shared a microphone or shared a voice with the investors for them to, to express their point of view. Yeah, I agree. I mean, a lot of my investors as well, they're part of sort of like piecemeal organizations here and there, maybe a group on WeChat or other groups where they're getting information. But I think it's definitely important for the investors to have a voice, a collective voice, and also to have somewhere where they can get accurate information from. Because obviously, when they're hearing information from all different places, um, there's a lot of misinformation that goes around. So I think that's important as well. So I agree with Aptina. I applaud you guys for starting this organization. I think it's a great idea. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about what your priorities are at this time? Because there's so much going on in the EV5 industry. Um, so it's actually a really poignant time for you guys to have started. You, you came about with the group back in April 2021, right? So it's, it's definitely been a busy time since then in EB5. What are some of your priorities at the moment when it comes to um, things like reauthorization of the program or, for example, the status of uh, individuals who are currently waiting for their I-526s to be approved? So great question. So I think going back to why we founded the organization, we founded in April because the, the 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 founding members essentially sort of foresaw this situation coming about. The reauthorization issue, we saw that the current Grassi Leahy bill had issues and investors' voice was lost in that. Um, and we did not have any representation when it came to the actual legislative uh, process. So the biggest priority for us right now, of course, is reauthorization. Uh, we want the program to be authorized. We, we believe that investors who have invested in good faith, who submitted the applications at the time when a law was active, should be processed fairly. Uh, we think it's it, it's not a good thing that 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 the disagreements between the industry causes all applications to be stalled. So one of the major pushes that we've done now since we've been active is grandfathering investor applications, meaning that in case of a lapse, in case of this lapse or future lapses, investors' application processing would not be stopped. And we think that's the biggest thing that, that that's our biggest priority right now with for existing investors in the process, wherever they are. Now, as far as those who are waiting for their pending five to sixes, four eight fives, et cetera, it's it's the same. We we want the applications to be processed. Uh, we speak with investors almost every day, people who are unable to go to school, folks who are unable to join their families in the US, and, and they're all stuck because they, they all expected, they had expected investment and immigration timeline, and that is not being followed. Uh, people put their lives on the line, and people put a lot of their money, hard-earned money on the line too. And for them to be made to wait longer than, than they were initially told is, is disappointing, and we want to fix that. Now, as far as the future of the EB-5 program, after we deal with reauthorization, we'd like to tackle things like processing times, uh, maybe create a liaison with USCIS, DOS, DHS, and, and be able to push for more transparency with those organizations. 
we are consumers of the program. We have paid these organizations fees in order for our applications to be processed and, and move forward. And and when as a consumer, when we, we don't get the transparency that we need from this, these organizations, it hurts us. And and as as AIA, we want to fix that. Uh, the, the American Immigrant Investor Alliance wants to advocate on behalf of all investors, regardless of their country of birth, regardless of where they are in the process. Once you've submitted a 526, we, we wish to represent everyone who's crossed that threshold. And, and Ishan, from an investor's perspective, uh, I know, you know, USCIS is, is a, an organization where all of their budget comes from, you know, fees that they charge from immigrant investors, people like you. And, you know, in, in the past, I mean, I know I've been in the industry almost 10 years, you know, in 2011, 2012, these, these filing fees were negligible. I mean, they were very small. They were, I believe, less than $100. And, you know, they, they, USCIS brought the idea of premium processing and basically everything became premium processing. Now the fees have crept up to, you know, 2700 3700 for I-924 application just to change a regional center to $17,000, uh, you know, filing fee. All of this was supposed to be done to, to, you know, generate new revenue for the USCIS so the USCIS could hire more people and these wait times could come down. But the exact opposite has happened. You know, I, I just feel like when you file an application, it goes into a black hole and you don't hear anything from the USCIS in, in you know, in 24 months at the least. And if, if the USCIS was a Fortune 500 company, we bankrupt. If it's if it's a if it's any other government or agency that it had to answer to stakeholders, you know, it would be in, in hot water. But for some reason. The USCIS operates and keeps raising its fees. And if I was an investor in your shoe, I'd be irate because those fees have were supposed to be used to generate resources, to hire more people, to bring those wait times down. I'd love to hear your point of view in that regard and, and what you think, uh, you know, are the, are the filing fees correct? Are they too high? Why are you getting, not getting the service that you're paying for? And where is those where are those resources going? Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. And the thing is, I think what a lot of Americans forget is that this country was founded on immigration. The immigrants is what makes this country great. And when your immigration system is so deeply flawed, it, it really puts a stain on this country. And so with regards to processing fees and filing fees, I would hope that going forward, we can fix that. Uh, we can advocate for uh, better processing times, more, more, and more transparency as, what, as to what's happening with our applications. I personally, I'm not against what the filing fees and the processing fees are. I mean, I, I get it. It's it's a tough business. You know, adjudicators are 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 paid what they're paid, and and they deserve to be. Uh, but I would hope that perhaps once we create a liaison with them, once we can advocate for investors much more formally. We can ask for things like premium processing for I-526 applications. I think there are plenty of investors out there who would be happy to pay a higher fee if they knew that their application would be processed in three months, six months, just a fixed time frame. Many immigrant investors, I mean, they put in a lot of money with the hope that they can bring them and their families to the U.S. at a certain time. Uh, most immigration by investment programs have a sort of timeline, a reliable timeline. That, that immigrants can look forward to. And uh, it's, it's disappointing that the greatest country on this planet can't, can't, can't you know, keep that up. So uh, I, I, again, I'm not against the current fees. I think they're fine. If, if, that, if that's what they're charging us, we're happy to pay it. But in return, USCIS must be transparent 
with immigrants as to where their application is. And this should be throughout the board. It shouldn't just be with EB-5. Um, I would say even with, you know, applications such as asylum cases, there should be transparency as to where those people are in line. How long is it going to take? When is the application up for renewal processing? All of that stuff should be made transparent. I think that's true. I think that would make a lot of our jobs more easier, easier as well. Um, just having more transparency and being able to answer questions for investors, because just as much as investors don't know the answers, we have no way of finding out. And, you know, you send inquiries to USCIS and, or NBC and you don't really get responses or you get very vague responses. So it's often very frustrating for um for the investors as well as for people like me who are consultants and attorneys who are trying to help investors as well um since you've been active what are some of the issues you've tackled so far and what have you been able to achieve um yeah i can i can take that priya yeah so you know true to our sort of a dna you know some of our uh, initial events in terms of achievements were you know we just wanted to get online with the investor community that's behind us uh, you know, we've been busy doing, you know, town halls uh, almost on a weekly basis for different communities, different time zones. It's it's quite hectic. There never seems to be, as as you would know in this world, a time that really works for every time zone or most time zones. So it's it's been hectic activity, you know, as far as that is concerned. Um, in addition to that, so you know, just from you know getting our word out there, uh, and and really our sort of focus right now is to you know. Uh, have as many investors know about as as possible. So so obviously a lot of effort has gone in that regard. Now in terms of actual tangible deliverables that that investors do care about, you know one of the things that you know Ishan alluded to earlier, which we have uh, you know uh, taken up uh, quite seriously, is the idea of grandfathering of the investor ap applications. And what we really see that uh, effort as is really a technical fix in the way that existing legislation is written. I don't think it was ever the intention that when, you know, these people apply that, uh, you know, future laws would be retroactively applicable to, to investors. So really our sort of uh, approach to this grandfathering is that, you know, the, the rules, the laws and the regulations that were in place at the time that these investors filed their applications should apply throughout their investment and immigration timelines. So really what we're looking for is a safe passage for investors uh, regardless of the status of the regional center program. And, you know, we've taken that a step further. We, we're not just talking about that in concept. We have actually got a piece of legislation drafted, uh, which is known as the uh, Foreign Investor Fairness Protection Act that we hope that becomes law one day. So we're actively, you know, pushing for that with, uh, you know, members of Congress, members of Senate. Um, and, and really that sort of segues us into how do we get our job done? Uh, what we uh, have been busy doing and our specific strategy, at least at this place in time, at this point in time, is 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 really to educate the members of Congress about the program. You would be surprised how little education is um, about this program specifically and how it sort of gets lost in the weeds of just immigration at large or even employment-based immigration at large. And what we're trying to do is change the perception of the program. So we run a campaign that's known as uh, faces behind EB-5. And, and what that campaign focuses on is the individual investors and the families that are behind this process, really the investors that form the bedrock of the industry. Um, and that is a perspective that is new. Uh, that is a perspective that we hope changes the perception, you know, within the, uh, within the House and within the Senate of what this program is and what good it does, uh, you know, to the country. It's a mutually beneficial program as it was always intended to be. But somewhere 
somewhere that's been lost and we sort of want to reinvigorate that. So that's, that's been, um, you know, these are the things that have been keeping us busy among other things. I just did want to highlight that, you know, IAUSA, um, in one of their blogs. Um, and we, you know, we actively were, were, were actively, uh, you know, discussing our issues with all industry folks, IAUSA and, and others. Um, but, you know, IAUSA uh, did recognize us as an investor voice. So there's a blog that they released. Um, Ishan might know the name because it's, uh, it's an industry blog. I, f- I forget the name. And then other than that, the EB5 Investor Magazine also covered us. Um, so these are just sort of a couple of I guess, media, maybe events that happen, which, uh, you know, we don't focus a whole ton on media, but it is definitely nice when we, when we do get acknowledged and, and, uh, recognized. And, and, um, that, um, that investor protection act, uh, you know, I just have an update for the investors. I believe, uh, Robert Devine and Karen Lee, uh, were instrumental in, in writing that. And, you know, in the past, I think the most important thing for all of us was, was a reauthorization, but right now, I think that's actually even more important to reauthorization to make sure that these existing investors that have done everything that U.S. Congress has asked them, which is generate jobs, bring economic activity, do their applications, follow all the rules, and they could potentially still be at risk. So the, the most important thing right now is to make sure the existing investors are covered and grandfathered. And I did hear that the other side of the aisle, and when I say the other side of the aisle, not Republican, Democrat, but the, the group that was against this bill, has also reviewed that and as an agreement. So hopefully there's something will happen soon. Uh, I heard that as of, uh, as of last Thursday. Uh, you know, one, one, one of the most uh, important things, I think, for, for investors to, to really hear, I think there's lots of negative articles about EB-5. And, and you know, you, you hear all these things in the press that falsely identify EB-5 as a cash for visa program not understanding that all the jobs that you have to be created and all the, you know, all of the work that has to be done in the background to make sure these projects qualify, bring in economic activity to well-needed areas in the United States. And I think a lot of people that don't understand the EB-5 program, they just assume that, you know, it's some oligarch that's writing a $900,000 check and they're, you know, multi-billionaires in their yacht and they're doing this EB-5 investment. But we're, you know, pre and I on the forefront, we're, we're talking to investors. Now, granted, there are investors that are very high net worth, but the average investor is the working middle class family that just wants a better life for their family. Some people are getting loans to do this. And, you know, that, that's, that was one of the reasons I actually didn't like the $900,000 program, even though the U.S. is a premium you know, residency to all these other countries should have a premium pricing. But, you know, it, it really kind of uh, made it less affordable for average middle class family and made it almost a millionaire program. But 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 even even so, even at nine hundred thousand, I think you, you hear a lot of stories and you know that average investor is a middle class or you know upper middle class family just trying to bring their, their family to the United States. And I think it's important for our audience and, and especially members of Congress to hear what the typical investor is or looks like. Could you just sh- share some light on that? I know you, you guys have a lot of members and then maybe talk about how many members you currently have. And, and then uh, maybe we can put out a plug plug where investors can go and sign up. Sure. Uh, yeah, so our our investors um, really, you know, just the DNA of this AIA, the, the organization is simply that we represent investors regardless of their country of origin or country of birth. Um, so we have investors from, you know, the obvious, uh, you know, top nations that currently subscribe to this program, namely, you know, India, China, Vietnam, uh, but then also all the others that you would you would think of, you know, we have investors who, you know, and very actively participate from Singapore, from from Hong Kong, from Australia, from Canada, like myself, uh, you know, New Zealand. So we really have, you know, uh, a, a fairly diverse set of investors that are 
you know, members of this organization. Um, and, you know, in terms of uh, memberships, it may be something we'll talk about later on in this, in this uh, show here. But, you know, we are working on some membership, uh, you know, program uh, specific uh, to the, those that could be tailored to, you know, like I said, the full life cycle of the investor journey. So we're sort of in the uh, early innings of developing something. Right, right now, our focus is obviously what's in front of us right now in terms of reauthorization. But, you know, uh, once the dust settles on that, we do come look to uh, come out with a comprehensive membership program. Um, but yeah, so going back to your, your question, yeah, no, the people that are behind you know, EB five are obviously from from a country of origin perspective, they're they're quite diverse. But you know, oh, those that are in the United States, you know, these are tax paying people, uh, tax paying residents of the United States. A lot of them work in you know the medical profession, the COVID front lines. We have members who are interventional cardiologists. We have members who are uh, you know research doing research on on pharmaceuticals uh, as it relates to to COVID. We have obviously a lot of folks that are from the tech community. Uh, so it, it is quite broad and diverse, um, even even for those that are you know currently in the U.S. on different different statuses. And to add to that, a lot of those uh, those investors, especially the ones who are in the U.S., are the biggest and best advocates for us. Uh, when we get on calls with Senate staffers and members of Congress, what we do is we usually bring on some of these investors, especially investors who live in their districts uh, uh, of these respective respective Congress people. And we, we show them that, look, this is your this is your future resident. This will be a citizen someday. He's going to be a donor. He's going to be a voter. And he's the kind of person who is affected by the program lapse. He is the kind of person who's affected by slow processing times. And this is your constituent. You should you, you should uphold your responsibility to them. And that is, I feel, it makes the biggest impact. You know, it's one thing when an issuer or, or, or developer or someone approaches a congressperson, and that's great, you know, and, and they can do that. But but as an as an immigrant with our individual stories, I feel like that is what makes the biggest and best impact when it comes to actual advocacy of this of of you know, of EB five and and helps change the perception that this isn't just a cash for visa scheme for you know ultra wealthy immigrants. These are folks who work hard, who love this country, who want to do good for it, who've invested half a million dollars with the hope that it would benefit the U.S. economy and benefit their families. So that is a point that we get, we try to get across when we do our advocacy work. And 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 to to add to that, you know, when, when they call this cash for you know visa or cash for citizenship, it really makes me irate because, you know, St. Kitts has a program that's cash for for green card or you know you 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 mail them, you know, a check and they'll mail you back a passport. And the U.S. program is the exact opposite of that. I mean, you have to create jobs. You have, it's an economic development uh, tool, and it's to create jobs for low-income areas. And, you know, I don't think people really understand the ins and outs of all the documentation, all the work, and all the preparation that goes through to make sure that this is exactly what it's intended. And it's the exact opposite of cash for visa program because you send the cash and, you know, you, you do all of the job creation and all the requirements. You don't even hear back for two years. So how is that a cash for a visa program if, if you can't even hear back from the agency that you're working with for two years. And, and, and just, you know, I, I like to clear up a lot of those misconceptions. I know Priya, you had a question, so I'll yield back to you. Yeah. I know you guys were saying that you obviously have members from all over the globe, from every nationality. 
Um, and I was just wondering, how do you sort of deal with the different needs of investors, depending on what nationality they're from or what country they're from? Because I'm sure there are different needs and wants for individuals or investors from different countries. So how do you sort of align those? For example, removing visa caps, uh, removing the visa cap, for example. Sure. Uh, what you're referring to is country cap removal. Yeah. You know, that, that's, a, that's a really good question. And he, I, I will start by stating our guiding principle when we do any kind of advocacy work or when we're advocating for anything. We are against any proposals that would lengthen the investment or immigration timeline for any investor already in line. So that means that if you're advocating for a certain proposal, which benefits a certain class of investors while hurts others, we are against that. That is our issue with the the one, the one big issue, which is country cap removal, which a, a, a certain EB-5 investor community is pushing for. And here's the thing. We understand why they're pushing for it. We understand their pain. We understand the long backlogs that that community is facing. And the, the, the truth is that, that we're against it because it would negatively impact those who are already in line, who those who already made a decision and made calculations for their children, for their families, that they would be able to get a green card for that reason. And, and, and to add to that, I mean, I'll give an example. A lot, of, uh, a lot of the big consumers of EB-5 are, in the last few years, are Indian immigrants who have been stuck in the EB-2, EB-3 backlog. Many of them did EB-5 because they saw on the visa bulletin that it was current for India and they did it for that reason. Now to suddenly have to wait longer now that they've already invested seems extremely unfair given that they're already in another visa backlog to begin with. So for that reason, we're against any proposal that affects uh, existing investors in line. But that said, we do want to work with all communities to find some kind of middle ground to help alleviate the immigration backlog. Um, whether it's advocating for more visa numbers, whether it's advocating for uh, EAD and work permits after the I-526 approval, we're open to whatever solutions that are workable, that can be, that can be proposed, that are non-controversial and, and can be brought forward to members of Congress. So we look forward to engaging with different investor communities uh, over these next few months. And hopefully, as reauthorization is taken care of, we can advocate for those issues together jointly. And to clarify, you know, for um, those investors that are mainly mainland China investors who, you know, currently have, I forget what the backlog date is, but it's somewhere between 10 and 15, yeah, 10, 10 and 15 years. And and to be fair to them, they, they also were current and they didn't know they were going to have a backlog or when they signed up, they may have had a, you know, one or two year backlog and then they ended up at 15. So I understand where their frustration comes from. They also have a right to be frustrated, but I agree with you. I mean, if you remove the per country caps, the you know, if China has a 15-year backlog, their backlog goes down to 14 years. But every other country that doesn't have a backlog, their wait times go from you know, going through the whole program in five years to now they're they're having a, a 12 to 14-year backlog. So it essentially saves the Chi mainland Chinese investors very little time, and it costs every other country an extra 10 years. So it just doesn't really help any anybody. Yeah, and Abtin, just just to sort of follow up on the, the idea of the Chinese investors, you know, it, it seems too simplistic to sort of bundle them all under one class of investors. We have done outreach with a number of them. You know, we've had town halls and, you know, we're trying to get as close to, you know, uh, 
close to them as possible in the sense that there's obviously technological barriers and whatnot to be able to reach them. But what we have found is that, uh, you know, even within the large, very large and big and diverse community of, of, of single country uh, based investors, there, there's diverse viewpoints. There's people who, you know, would absolutely appreciate a program that, you know, would rather be a more transparent program that that where they can access a set of facts that are available to everybody. So, you know, uh, to think that every single one, uh, you know, investor in in China has a certain viewpoint, uh, you know, we found the opposite to be the case. You know, some of the earlier, um, you know, priority dates in China, um, you know, they're not as affected by, by, by you know, the current retrogression. Uh, they want to see a program that works for everybody. Um, you know, so, so we're, you know, just to kind of back up Ishan's point, we're, we're looking for middle ground uh, with which um, all of us can coexist. And, and we feel that, you know, a lot of our sort of asks are just based on common law and reasonableness. And, and you know, wherever we are encountered with uh, issues that sort of sidetrack us from those guiding principles, you know, those are the ones we put in the parking lot because there's just enough work to be done just on the common ground issues to begin with. Agreed. And um, so Sean and Sean, I know you, you, you've done a lot of outreach programs. Uh, more, more recently, you guys spent some time with uh, in Senator Durbin's office. Can you give us some updates on, on some of the outreach programs and what conversations you've had with uh, with Senate staff and helping move this uh, move this bill or, or a version of this program forward? Sure. Um, so we've had a number of uh, calls with key members of the Senate, including members of the crucial Senate Judiciary Community. Um, we, we try to convey investor concerns, the effect of the regional center program lapse to those uh, Senate staffers. Um, we've had calls with staff members for from Senator Chuck Grassley, uh, Alex Padilla, Pat Toomey, Dick Durbin. And, you know, the general themes of these conversations from what we've, we, we try to obviously do our own sort of fact finding from them. We try to gain information from them and then we obviously uh, get into our conversations. But what we've learned and this is kind of, I mean, I don't mean to call out the industry here, but I've heard a lot about from various members of the industry about how Congress looks upon favorably upon this program and things like that. And to be honest, I haven't really found that. What we found is that many of these uh, Senate members and their staffers aren't really even aware of EB-5. And if so, they, they get most of their perception from the media, which generally doesn't carry a very favorable view of this program. They have little to no knowledge about the actual consumers of the program. They are, aren't necessarily aware about who are the people who use it currently and, and are benefiting from this immigration by investment program. So most of our calls, we start by truly uh, by educating these members about EB-5, the main consumers, who, who are the people who have been investing for the last four or five years and benefiting from the program, what kind of projects they invest in. I, for example, invested in a hotel in Puerto Rico. And uh, when the, once the project is complete and the hotel is up and running, that island, which relies so much on tourism, will no doubt benefit from that my investment. And 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 so highlighting uh, uh, stuff like that is, is is really what we try to do when we get on these calls. Along with that, you know, we usually try to like I think I mentioned this earlier, which is we try to bring on an investor who lives in that district or, who, or an investor who has invested in a project in their district and is able to highlight how they themselves have contributed so much to the local economy, even before the EB-5 investment, and now how their investment is currently benefiting uh, that state. Uh, for example, on our last call with Senator Toomey, 
uh, who's a Republican senator from uh, Pennsylvania, we had a, uh, a gastroenterologist, a doctor who was a, him and his wife were COVID frontline workers. And he highlighted how he had spent almost 10 years in this country, getting his medical degree, uh, get, building him and his family a home, uh, sending his kids to school in, uh, in the great state of Pennsylvania and, and highlighting how once he was unable to get his green card through the normal route, decided to do EB-5. And has now since since then, who he invested in, I think 2018, 2019, has been invest has been waiting since then to get his green card, and and showing how uh, and, and I think though that's where we're truly effective is we highlight personal stories, we show the human side of EB five. It's not just you know developers and issuers and attorneys, uh, you know involved in this. It's it's immigrants who want to contribute to this country, who want to do good. And are doing everything on good faith, and and that is a, that is where I believe that the American Immigrant Investor Alliance is successful when it comes to their advocacy work. And and in and when we talk and we get in front of senators and and Senate staffers, we're able to highlight these these stories uh, to get our point across. So a lot of a lot of organ a lot of the other organizations like IAUSA or um, EB Five IC they've also obviously been having conversations um, with Congress members, Senate members. Um, what are some of the points that you your organization agrees with with IAUSA and EB Five IC? So that's a great question. So I think first and foremost we have an agreement when it comes to long term reauthorization. Uh, you know, we and and other uh, members of EB5IC, IUSA, all agreed that that you know having investors panic every few months, having all the entire industry panic every few months, whether or not this program would be reauthorized, is not something any of us want. We 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 want a long term stable program that investors can rely on and and get the applications through. So there is an agreement when it comes to that. There's also an agreement on grandfathering of investors. Like we mentioned, the Foreign Investor Fairness Protection Act that we employ Robert Devine to help write uh, is, is, is agreed upon by all parties. Um, we are pushing this as a standalone bill when we get in front of uh, Senate staffers. But we're, we're also hoping that EB5IC and IUSA will include that language in their uh, bills whenever it's whenever they have it published. Um, I, I think, I, you know, in terms of what else we agree on, I think we all agree on shorter processing times and all of that. And I think we see more eye to eye on most of, if not all issues uh, than anything. Here are the point, here's probably the one or two points that we may disagree on. And that it simply comes back to the guiding principle that I mentioned earlier. We oppose any policies that would lengthen the immigration or investment timeline of investors. So take, for example, a proposal like visa set aside. That, I mean, that phrase by itself, visa set aside, setting aside a visa that was supposed to be issued to an investor, setting it aside for someone who has invested in a specific project or specific TEA, uh, I don't feel is fair. Uh, we believe that investors should be processed. Anyone who's invested already in line should be processed according to the laws and, and statute that exists. But to take away a visa that is supposed to go to someone and give it to somebody else, we think is extremely unfair. Uh, so proposals like that we're against. But other than that, I think most of us groups, we all agree on almost, I guess, 90% of the current issues that face EB-5 investors today. 
And I think you're right. The one thing you said, which is so true, is that, you know, it's come to the point where investors have to really, they're they're nervous about their investments and they really have to think twice and they're getting worried every few months as to what is going to happen with this program because there's been so many things that have been up in the air over the past couple of years. And I've never seen so much skepticism with the program as I have nowadays. Um, and rightfully so, because there there's just so much going on and there's so much uncertainty that investors don't know which way to look when it comes to thinking about investing in the EB-5 program. So is there any sort of advice that you can give investors or potential EB-5 investors when it comes to investing in the regional center program? Um, do you think after reauthorization, is this still going to be a good idea? And do you have any general advice when it comes to the EB-5 program and becoming an investor? Sure. Um, you know, both Sean and I, EB-5 investors ourselves, and and we understand the needs and wants of these immigrant investors as they come through the process. So once this EB-5 regional center program is reauthorized, and I hope that it's reauthorized without anything unfavorable, uh, then I would recommend to investors that they truly do their due diligence. Um, the best kind of research that I tell investors that they should do is to do it themselves. I understand that there's a lot of advisors and third party uh, folks out there that, that, that exist to help advise and, you know, sort of help you through the process. But I do believe every investor should do their own due diligence when engaging on this. And there's two types of due diligence you want to do. You want to do an immigration due diligence, meaning you want to understand the possible timelines, the possible delays you may face as you go through this process you must understand your source of funds. You must understand where your money is coming from and if it is okay. Um, uh, there's a proposal that, that was there in the previous Grassi-Lehi bill, which I'm vehemently against, which is the lack of judicial review. What that would entail is if an investor received a denial on their I-526, rather than being able to use the American court system and appealing that denial, they would have to be forced to go through the Office of Administrative Appeals. And that is a black hole by itself. And those over there appeals can take years to be resolved. And, you know, I have an investor recently who uh, who received an unfavorable opinion from USCIS uh, because of cryptocurrency usage in, in his I-526. And I imagine if if that investor didn't, if this law existed, then this investor would not be able to appeal the, the denial of their case. And, and that I think is, is important. So as long as we don't have things like that, negative things like that in the future of the EB-5 regional center program, I, I would expect investors to be okay. But if something like that did exist, I would hope the investors do everything they can to ensure that their source of funds and their application would be solid. Now let's talk about investment due diligence. Uh, I think it's important investors do their homework when they look at where to invest. Uh, I, I think they should do a thorough analysis as to the project, where the money is going into. And I'm going to be a stickler for this. And I know probably some investors may not like hearing this, but read your PPM. Read the every project, every invest, EB-5 investment offering has to give you a, a private placement memorandum. It is extremely important. And it's long. It's a thousand page document. But I do advise that every prospective investor read and understand the PPM before they make the investment. It's something I do too. I mean, I actually wrote an article about this in EB-5 Investor Magazine uh, about the critical things that investors should look for in their PPM. But 
I, I, I just think it's important for investors to you know go through, understand the terms and conditions of the investment, understand when they would be repaid, how they would be repaid. If it's a debt, if it's a debt investment uh, within a debt EB five project, then understand what is your loan secured over. Understand the asset. Look at how much the asset was uh, was purchased for initially. How much money has been spent on construction. Those are little little things which I do believe an investor should be look should look at, and even after they do the investment, should continue to monitor as time goes on. Um, so that's my uh, I guess two cents as far as uh, investors looking into the process. Isha, my suggestion would be if there is a PPM that's a thousand pages long, then you should skip that project too. I'm just kidding. Go for, go uh, for one with eight hundred pages. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, I think I think it's it's very important that what you, what you mentioned. I think uh, a lot of investors, especially investors in India, I've, I've traveled to India many times. You know, they they get this false uh, sense that just because someone is a immigration attorney that they can be qualified to give them investment advice. And I think it's really important what you mentioned that you split up those two those two functions. There's the immigration side. You know, how safe is this project from an immigration perspective? Is the TEA safe? Is the job creation safe? Or all the things that are matter or how business plan require uh, for the USCIS in order for this project to get approved. That type of advice you can get from the immigration attorney. But then, you know, investment advice, you know, that's a completely different category. And I applaud you uh, for you doing your homework. I mean, you can hire third party due diligence firms that may get expensive. But I think investors should either talk to other investors or or do their own homework on on the on the, you know, on, on, on the um you know, the quality of the project and what type of project it is. Uh, one, one of the things I, I suggest, and I think every investor should do, do their own due diligence or, or, or really, you know, talk to people that know uh, real estate, especially in real estate projects. But but one one thing I think it's really important, projects that, qual- you know, require either sell of the project or revenues in order to pay the investors back are generally going to be tougher. And I think institutional quality, you know, in the United States, Certain asset classes are institutional quality, which means banks financing, which means there's a market to refinance. Those are, you know, hotels, multifamily, you know, apartments, uh, condos. Typically, they have to rely on sales of those condos. If the market's great, they sell them and pay you back. If it's not, you may be stuck. Uh, but, you know, mixed use, you know, uh, retail, office, th- those are all assets that are institutional quality assets. But, you know, there's, there's been, you know, projects where a big giant ski resort that costs a billion dollars. Well, who's going to refinance that? There's not really a market to refinance ski resorts. So that that becomes complicated. But but I agree with you. I think investors should do due diligence uh, and, and not really rely on immigration attorneys to make investment advice. They should rely on immigration attorneys for the immigration advice. And I think that's an important point. Uh, Ishan, I know uh, the, the part of the, the bill that you didn't really like, and I agree with you, I actually don't like that. That you know, do you know, due process is taken away from investors. But I think one of the things that investors and and a lot of the stakeholders fail to realize, you know, we all want what we want. You know, everyone has different requirements. In, in a perfect world, we get a perfect bill. But sometimes in politics, you have to take a poison pill and and, and get the you know get the bill moving forward. And 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 in a lot of stakeholders' eyes, I think that was a that was a a fair thing to take in order to get the reauthorization, but unfortunately that didn't happen. So now we're back to the drawing boards. Um, maybe if we could spend a minute talking about um, just, you know, the different uh, organizations out there and what are, what are just the recent happenings that you've been hearing about, uh, about the potential of the B5 uh, regional center program. Sure. Um, well, I mean, as of right now, which is now we're 26 days into the B5 program lapse, um, uh, I, I think generally the, the the tone from investors is slowly, slowly uh, going from disappointment to anger. 
Um, I think all groups are kind of feeling the pressure when it comes to this. I know there's efforts being made in terms of attempts to get this program reauthorized or perhaps even a short-term extension. Uh, but but it's it's way to be seen. I mean, uh, the, the hope is, I know one group is trying to push for this, for the reauthorization to be included in the upcoming infrastructure bill uh, or the reconciliation uh, bill, but it's yet to be seen. Um, you know, we're, we're approaching 30 days of the program lapse. Um, I can't imagine what it's going to be like once we hit day 40, day 60, as the international media and other members begin to pick up on this and the, the, the negative effect the lapse is having on these immigrants. Uh, you know, I, I can imagine that it's it's going to hit a boiling point at some point or the other. And what we're hearing so far is that it, it most likely appears that the program will be reauthorized at the end of September, which is, you know, quite a long time away. Um, and and while I, I applaud the groups, the, in the industry groups for trying whatever they can, we're still going to keep pushing our, uh, our, our bill, which is the Fairness, uh, the Foreign Investor Protection Act. And, uh, and, and the hope is that, you know, somehow or the other, one of us groups will be successful. Um, I do hope that we can reach a point where we're all working and communicating with each other regularly. Um, we aren't there yet, but that is the hope that, that all of us groups can work together to get this program back and, and coordinate this effort in a, in a, in a positive fashion. Um, uh, with that, I'll also, you know, mention to investors who are stuck in this process and who are feeling helpless about all of this, uh, reach out to us, uh, you know, our website, goaia.org, uh, that's goaia.org, um, find us, you know, sign up for our advocacy form, uh, send us your information, sign up for our newsletter, uh, check out our blog posts, you know, th- there's ways to get involved in advocacy efforts, there's ways to sort of help bring this program back to protect existing investors in line. So if I, I, I'm sure if we all work together from the industry groups, from the lawyers, everyone, there's a way, there's a path forward. Over the last week, we've had, we've been approached by uh, some foreign migration consultancies, some, some attorneys as well, who all want to get involved and help us out. So we're looking to, uh, to partner up with all of these organizations and, 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 build a coalition that can help protect existing investors in line, because that's really our number one priority. Uh, you know, we believe that that this industry will prosper if current investors are taken care of. So uh, the hope is that, you know, we can take care of them, we can get our reauthorization back and get a program back and, and, and get these investors along in the process. Uh, can I just uh, talk about one thing? I don't know if you have an opinion on it or not, but um, you know, there's also been some talk about there being, even though the program will be reauthorized by end of September, hopefully, that there might be another small window where they're allowing for investors to come in at five hundred thousand um, rather than an increased price again. Have you heard anything about that? And what is your opinion on that? I'm not sure if you have any investors in your group that invested at the $900,000 mark, but how have they been affected? And and have you heard anything along the lines of there being another small window at 500? Um, not entirely sure if we're going to have a small window at 500. If we do get a short-term extension now over the, maybe the next week or two or you know before senate goes into uh uh, uh goes into vacation or they're 
period or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So before Senate, before Senate goes into recess, uh, there may be a small window when it opens up at $500,000, but it, it's hard to say whether that'll happen or not. Um, with regards to investors who've already invested at $900,000, I think some of them would naturally feel disappointed that, that, you know, a product that they, that they've invested in, it now costs half the amount, but unfortunately there's not much that, you know, they can do about it. Uh, more, I imagine most projects have already deployed their money. So it's not like, you know, they could have refiled and maybe got a refund or something like that. But uh, I, I think their biggest concern is that the fact that they've invested at this new investment amount uh, after November, 2019, and now their applications are stalled. I think that's what probably hurts them a lot more than knowing that, hey, the investment amount is back at 500. And with that said, you know, I do expect the investment amount to rise again. And I actually think it should. You know, both Sean and I invested at the $500,000 level, but I think it's completely fair for a country like the United States to raise their minimum investment threshold. Uh, You know, take Canada, for example, their QIP, when it first uh, released the Quebec Immigration Investment Program, I think started at 400,000 Canadian dollars. They raised it to 800, then to 1.2 million Canadian dollars. Every country has raised their golden visa programs with time, with, with inflation, with uh, and that's completely fair, as they should. And so for the U.S. to have it at $500,000 since the 1990s and now want to raise it, I think that's perfectly fine. Um, I hope whenever they, they do come about raising it, I mean, hopefully it's not at 900, maybe it's a little bit lower, but I think it's completely reasonable for the government to want to do so. You know, one thing I would add to that, you know, we're hearing a lot of rumors out there, you know, rumors that, you know, the the program was 500,000 and then it became 900,000. Now they're going to split the difference and the new program will be, you know, 700 and 750,000. I think a lot of those people that are creating these rumors just don't really have a sense of reality. At the end of the day, there are things that we want or things that other stakeholders want. And, you know, sometimes they, they pass these rumors and they become, you know, they just people run wild with them. But at the end of the day, the senators, you know, and, and, the re- and there's reasons why the Senate is really the, the, the arena that the EB-5 bill is getting built on and not in the House. And it's because, you know, certain states that have more population are going to have more Congress uh, members like New York, L.A. or New York, California, Texas and Florida. For that reason, all the battles have been fought, you know, fought in the Senate. You know, for, you know, the New York gets two senators and Idaho gets two senators and Vermont gets two senators. And for those reasons, that's where that's where all these battles have been fought. And those senators that are influential have shown very little interest to make this program a five hundred thousand dollar program. In fact, you know, back when, you know, Ted Kennedy was the big champion of this program back in the 19, early 1990s, they always intended this program to be a million dollar program. They put a set aside of 30 percent of the visas for TEAs. They didn't envision that the program was going to be all TEAs. They just thought that that was going to be, you know, 30%. In fact, they put 30% of the visas aside for rural and TEAs, whether, you know, high unemployment or rural. And even in the, in the you know, in the latest uh, discussions, uh, you know, Senator Graham, Senator Schumer, Senator Grassley, Senator Leahy, the big influential senators uh, basically wanted to make this a million dollar program. Even 900,000 uh, was not enough when they were talking about permanent reauthorization. So there are definitely a lot of rumors out there about the $700,000 and other, you know, price limits. And I'm not saying those are impossible. They're not going to happen. But I think a lot of the people that are talking about those numbers are not really paying attention to what the members of, of Senate who, who are influential, who, who make these laws are, are interested in. And, and again, the, the both sides of the coin is, 
you know, if you make it a million dollar program, it makes it less affordable and, and you are making it a million dollar program. But and, and you know, the, the, the other part side of the coin is the senators that view this is that, hey, the United States residency should be a premium to Malta, for example, or to Cyprus and some of these countries that have anywhere from 500,000 to a million half dollar program. And the United States is a, is a premium residency with the, with the U.S. passport. You can tr- basically travel anywhere in the world. And so I, I get both sides of the coin. But, uh, you know, th- there are definitely a lot of rumors out there. But I don't think the people that are passing these rumors have any idea what, what senator, the senators have in mind. Exactly. And, you know, I, I'll reflect on, um, I guess, our last call with Dick Durbin's office. And we specifically had a call with... Wilson Osario, who is the immigration counsel at Senator Durbin's office. And, you know, Senator Durbin is a member of the, is actually the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee and will no doubt play a, play a big role when it comes to adding on this, uh, this uh, an EB-5 reauthorization uh, uh, to the upcoming bills. And, you know, Mr. Osario was previously associate counsel at USCIS. He's quite familiar with how the agency works. And, you know, when we sat down with him and we, we made him aware of the program lapse and the plight of existing investors, Mr. Osorio was actually quite sympathetic. And he was surprised that the program's lapse had a retroactive effect on existing investors. Uh, you know, when we drafted the, the Foreign Investor Fairness Protection Act, we, we, chose, we went with Robert Devine because he is the chairman of the, he was, he was the chairman of the immigration division at, uh, uh, sorry, he is the page, uh, he is the chairman of the immigration division at Baker Donaldson, and he was a former chief counsel and acting director of USCIS. He understands the the agency as well. And you know, Mr. Osario's response after we walked with him and talked him through uh, this entire call, he he said he he said, yeah, look, I'm committed to writing a report about the B five program lapse and this bill, and he's going to run up the food chain food chain. And we we think that with efforts like this we can help sort of bridge the gap between the senators and and us and so we can we can help uh educate these members of congress on the labs on this on the impact of this uh, uh of this program on on individual investors and uh hope that you know something good comes out of it so i think we've already talked about um can you just go through again how, if, if an investor is wanting to become a part of your organization, what's the best way for them to do that? Who are making donations to you right now? And, and how are you using those donation dollars? Um, yeah, I'll take that, Priya. Good, good question. Yeah, look, ultimately, we're a member-funded organization. Um, you know, all of us uh, at the board uh, that run, you know, the, the day-to-day um uh, you know, we don't get paid. We don't, we don't take any money out. All of the donations we're, we're purely putting in our time. You know, most of us, if all of us have, you know, our nine to five jobs, and this is, this is really stuff that we're passionate about that, you know, that we're putting in our effort on, um, in terms of donations, uh, look very, we're very transparent about how, you know, the donation dollars are, are allocated and I'll, I'll, I'll read out, uh, you know, the, the list of items that we, um, you know, allocate these funds on. The first thing is, first and foremost, is we fund our political uh, consultancy expenses through this, uh, which is ultimately what gains us access to having these some of these direct conversations that we talked about in this episode. Um, you know, we're spending on building earned media presence and, uh, you know, funding some small marketing expenses, although we do a lot of, we believe in a lot of earned media. So we have our political consultancy that that helps out with this. So that is perhaps one of our single 
largest um, you know expenses. Uh, other than that, we have you know a slew of professional services expenses associated with all these um, you know legislative tax and proposals that we talked about. Um, you know, for a young organization like us, it was I'll say it was not easy to get some of the best in the profession from across the nation and and uh, commission you know the legislative tax that we did. But it's something that we all believe in. You know, we um, ultimately thought that you know once this is put out there, the investment uh, investor community rather would really see uh, the value. You know, this is, you know, one thing, there's one thing that investors like from across the world, which is which is consistency of the rules with which they're forced to play. Nobody likes the rules of the game changing midway on them when certain expectations were built. And this is something that we, that we advocate on as well, which is the fact that, you know, we believe that, you know, outside of the conversations about what, what amounts are appropriate, uh, as part of this program, the single single largest thing that that anybody could do is bring a level of uh, stability to the program and and remove all the uncertainty. Um, so that is definitely you know hampering uh, you know the activity in the industry. Outside of that, we fund a lot of legal services expenses that defend you know investor interests uh, in key ongoing EB five precedent building legal arguments. We have you know administrative expenses to carry out our five hundred one c four activities. And you know the website and overhead expenses, et cetera. Look, at the end of the day, we you know we are a grassroots organization, so we you know we have the philosophy of the three T's, which is you can either bring us your time, talent, or treasure, and we have people doing all three or doing one of the above, depending on their circumstances. Um, it's definitely true that those who are already in the U.S. or at least on the continent, uh, you know, tend to have a greater uh, role as it relates to uh, you know their time investment. Uh, but, you know, where the donations help us from across the globe is is furthering all of these uh, initiatives that, that we're working on. In the long term, what we hope this organization becomes is really a, a place where investors can call it home before they even, at least for those that are situated outside the U.S., you know, they can call it home before they even call the United States their home. Uh, you know, this is a place where we hope that investors come together and, uh, you know, have access to the most up-to-date current information, which is free from bias, free from misinformation. Um, you know, so that's something that we're striving on. We believe that once we, you know, again, going back to the previous point we made, if the existing investors, uh, you know, receive fair treatment, we believe that the industry thrives automatically. So it's sort of an intrinsic value system that we have where, you know, we, we consciously believe in serving the, the uh, investor community. I'll just do a quick plug here. So yeah, definitely go to our website, goaia.org. Um, you know, if you go to the take action page, there's information there on how to do all of the above. If you if you just want to quickly make a donation, there's donation links from a number of different um, uh, payment processing uh, platforms, as well as there's an investor advocacy form and a volunteer form. So, yeah, anybody who's got the right talents uh, to help out, we have positions that are opening open in uh, regulatory affairs. We have positions that are open, open in marketing, uh, in, um, you know, technology uh, and day-to-day -day operations. So we, we really do encourage people to come forward. And ultimately, we just want to be a forum which provides the voice to these investors. It is hard to get heard when you're a single voice, but, you know, having created this format, this, this forum, uh, you know, we encourage people to take charge of their own destiny, come forward, and, you know, don't be a passive uh, sort of spectator in this very important life-changing uh, decision that you have made come forward and be an active uh, participant in this. 
Yeah, I'll just wrap up and say, look, even though we do represent investors and most of our funding comes from EB5 investors themselves, we encourage other industry stakeholders to get involved with us too. Um, you know, whether you're an attorney, investment issuer, a regional center developer, send us an email. We let's let's figure out ways to partner up together and and do some good. Uh, we think the DB5 program could be changed for something positive. And uh, even as once we take care of this reauthorization stuff, I think we we have a big role to play in ensuring that existing and prospective investors can uh, can can utilize this immigration by investment program uh, for the greater good for everyone. I was, I was just going to ask one last question before we wrap up. If there were any members of the Senate that were listening to this, what would be the one message you would give them? Uh, sure. Um, well, the message that we want to give is that there's um, this is a program that, that Congress envisioned a long time ago, which was meant to bring jobs and economic development to this country at no cost to the U.S. taxpayer. Um, we know that there's a lot of programmatic issues and a lot of technicalities that the program you know, is, is in desperate, obvious desperate need of, um, of, of fixing for the, for the future. But we also believe that there's a real responsibility that Congress has to uphold the contract that it struck with existing investors. That's really the way that we look at it. We, we, we look at the idea of uh, retroactive application of, uh, you know, this lapse on existing investors as a common law issue, as a, as a, as a question of fairness. Uh, and, and really what we urge senators uh, and congressmen to look at is the is the is uphold the contract that this country stuck with uh, when when these investments were induced through this program. The fact that there was a Congress authorized regional center program through which people could participate and bring these investments in return for a residency. Uh, you know, that is that is a commitment that we look forward uh, the Congress to be able to uh, uphold uh, on its end. What we would like to see is decoupling the fate of people who've uh, you know, signed up on, under existing provisions of, of the law to be, uh, you know, retroactively disturbed through through future updates. So that's one of the biggest, uh, I guess, messages I'd like to pass on. Other than that, you know, looking towards the future, what we hope to see is that this program is seen as a job creating program. You know, as you as you guys know, this is often bundled with the employment based categories, which sort of muddies the water a little bit. Like, you know, this is not a program that is taking jobs away. This is not a program that is giving jobs away to uh, people who are outside. This is a job, this is a program that creates jobs for existing American citizens and, and residents. So in the future, we do hope that this is a, an important strategic tool that the United States can use towards its infrastructure needs. Um, and, you know, if we can reauthorize that program with some stability, with even some basic improvements to some of the programmatic issues, I think we can provide that stability with which this program can thrive. And one last comment I would add to that is I know that various senators from different states are fighting about where the, where the economic activity is happening. But the end, at the end of the day, every one of these EB-5 investors is coming to the United States and paying taxes and increasing the tax revenue in the United States in every state. So it's an economic benefit, even if they are not investing in the state. And I think that's important for, for the Senate members to understand. Thank you so much, uh, Sean and Ishan, for taking the time and joining us. This has been wonderful, and we look forward to uh, having you uh, on the show hopefully soon. Thank you for having us. Yeah, no, thanks for doing this. This, this was great. Thank you both. It even, it even allowed us to sort of uh, articulate why we're doing this, right? And this is really, uh, it's important when we come out and, you know, do these things that, um, you know, we're always sort of reminding ourselves what our guiding principles are, why, what our roots are, which 
you know, it is quite easy in day-to-day conversations to get distracted by one or the other or the other with so many different voices and stakeholders. But, you know, we're, we're just here for the existing investor class. Thank you again. Thanks. To contact the Investment Migration Report, please email Priya Malik at Priya, P-R-E-E-Y-A at stepglobalgroup.com or Abtin Vaziri at the Investment Migration Report at gmail.com or connect to our pages on LinkedIn and YouTube. Thank you for listening.